This episode of Ayahuasca Anonymous is sponsored by America, the greatest country in the world. Now, I'm ashamed to admit that when I was a little kid, I thought it was kind of weird that me and all my classmates had to stand up every day in school and in unison place our hands on our heart and pledge our allegiance to a country that we knew nothing about and had never been to any other countries. So we were seemingly not informed enough to be able to make that decision. But now, now I'm a grown-ass man, and I can see just how wrong I was. Of course I should pledge my allegiance to this great nation that I love so dearly. In fact, I believe I should pledge my allegiance to everything that I love. And so I've implemented some pledges in my personal and professional life that I'd like to share with you now. I pledge allegiance to the family of the greater Falkoff clan. One nuclear unit, under daddy, undivorceable, with fair allowances and only occasional corporal punishment for all. That one's for my wife and three children. We recite it every morning at 7 a.m. And here's one that I uh, use at work for my employees. I pledge allegiance to the Taco Bell Corporation of the Yum Brands conglomerate. One business family under whoever the current CEO is ununionizable with really, really fair wages and unlimited Mountain Dew Baja Blast for all. Amen. I force or uh, encourage my employees to recite that every day as we reheat last week's mountain of beef product. Anyway, thank you, America. Thank you for sponsoring this podcast. I love you. Hi, hello. Welcome to Ayahuasca Anonymous. I'm Nathaniel Falkoff. This is my podcast. My guest on this episode is Sinclair Fleetwood. Sinclair, I met, like everyone else that I'll probably interview, at an ayahuasca retreat when I first met her. She was a volunteer there. I came back a year later and she was still there. She just never left. Uh, She got hired as the manager, actually. So she worked as the manager of an ayahuasca retreat center for over a year. That gives her a unique perspective that I wanted to hear more about. A couple notes on this conversation. One, it was recorded four months ago. So I had the idea for this podcast quite a long time ago, and it took me a really long time to both get the courage to do it and just get my shit together. Um, the audio on this is not great. Let's just throw it out there. I fucked up. I had bought a nice mic, and then I, I didn't adjust my settings so it didn't use the mic. 
And I got really discouraged about that for a while. And I sort of blamed, oh, that's why I didn't release this podcast for four months. But now looking back, when I, once I went back in and listened to this conversation, I mean, it's not great, but it's also not unlistenable. So I blame the bad audio, but really in retrospect, I'm thinking it was just fear. Uh, it was kind of scary to put this out there to identify myself as a plant medicine weirdo. But that fear has uh, subsided a little bit. So it's interesting to go back and look at this and realize it wasn't the bad audio. <laughs> it was me. Okay. Uh, so back to Sinclair. Uh, Sinclair has a very interesting story of overcoming some addiction, uh, some really heavy trauma stuff with her dad. You'll hear all about it. But also, I really respect Sinclair because she's a great writer. Um, she's sort of transitioned into this new role for herself where she's branded as an integration coach, a psychedelic integration coach, um, which I was skeptical about first because I'm a skeptical person. But I read a lot of her material, and it's really good, um, especially if you're a beginner. I think she's a good at articulating some basic concepts that I think took me a while to wrap my head around. So I'm going to link all this stuff in the show notes if you want to check it out. Um, yeah, it was a great conversation with Sinclair. I really enjoyed it. As you'll hear, she's a very different personality than Mark from episode one. Sinclair is very bold and sassy, uh, which is great. I love it. I think it's good to represent all these different personality types which you'll hear, everyone, just like everyone is a different person in your life, psychedelic people are different too. There's different camps. There's all these labels and stuff. We're all just a bunch of messy humans. Um, so I really enjoyed this talk. Hope you do too. Okay, so we definitely need to dig into integration. But I think first we should back up and uh, hear a little bit about who you were before plant medicine and kind of what led you to that path? Ooh, okay. Um, so I lived in Austin for 18 years. Um, I moved there for college and, and ended up going into nonprofit there. And I worked for the Red Cross for like eight years. And I always wanted to help. Like I wanted to be a helper. And that was kind of what I made my career around. And I liked living in Austin. It was a great place. It was a boozy place that was like, you know, a fun party town to like be a young adult in. And I, that was the life I had. I was like cool nonprofit girl and like party girl. And I was really in trouble. Like I was, I was just really depressed and drinking a lot and doing a lot of cocaine and like kind of really not taking care of myself and sort of spiraling into this feeling of I was sort of like I had this great job and I had you know I had all the stuff I had a nice car I had a great friend group I had everybody thought I was nobody knew anything was wrong with me except for me and um I met this woman who's still my best friend Francesca we met at a um 
a divorce brunch of one of our <laughs> mutual friends. What is and a divorce like, brunch? It's like it's someone a, you know got divorced and yeah, she had a party a to celebrate her divorce. Yeah. Okay. So we had this divorce brunch and we like locked eyes over our eggs Benedict and like fell in friend love. And she knew me for, I don't know, two weeks and was like, you need to go to Burning Man. You really need to like cut loose and go have this experience. And I was like, I do not want to go. Those people are crazy. Like the more I read about it, I was like, no, no, this is insane. I can't believe people go out in the desert and do this. And um, I had also been like recovering from my father went to prison um, in 2011 and he had like tried to murder his girlfriend and there was like this scandalous trial and he got a double life sentence for assault and like it was just like the whole thing was this big really traumatic thing for my family um and then he was there for six months and he died and um so i was really we never really had a funeral for him or anything because there was a scandal and my mom was you know not able to put him to rest in a way that felt like we, you know, really did something. And so I had some ashes of his ashes and I wanted to take them to Burning Man because they have a temple there and people bring all kinds of things. And like, you can put whatever pain, you know, people come and they mourn and they, you know, they release. And then at the end of the week of the whole event, it's burned in silence. There's like a fire. It's like a huge fire and it's, it's, you know, 40 or 50,000 people just in silence watching it. It's really powerful. And so I, I took my dad's ashes with me for my first year at Burning Man and something happened to me out there where I like saw this version of myself that felt like my, my, I felt connected to my true self in a way that I hadn't felt since I was a kid, probably of just being like totally fine, being exactly who I was and not having to put on a show for anyone. Um, and meeting like other people that were doing that too. And everybody was just like so beautiful and messy and it's a crazy experience. And I came home from that event and I set my whole life on fire. I quit my job. I I had no plan whatsoever, but I just was like, nope, not that, not that, not doing that anymore. I ended up like selling all my stuff. I moved out of my fancy apartment and I was sort of floundering around like, oh God, what have I done? I don't know what I'm doing. And I got into a almost fatal car accident, like, cosmic bitch slap and I ended up having to move back to my hometown um because I was really severely injured I like broke my face basically um and so that was like that was like the year after the first time I went and the second time I went to Burning Man I got sober there like in the middle of the event I stopped drinking I had this like horrible night of blackout lost in the desert and woke up and I was like this is not where I want to be. Like, this is not how I want to live anymore. And um, I went back to the temple where I had taken my dad's ashes and I like left my, my alcohol demon in there and I haven't had a drink since that was over three years ago. Um, And from there I like started, it was like the forest fire had happened and then 
I started rebuilding myself and like discovering who I was. And um, I ended up following a guy down to South America, ended up getting dumped at Machu Picchu on um, a hike where I ended up having to hike down the mountain by myself because I was violently ill with altitude sickness. This sounds like made up, but it's totally true. No, I I believe it. And on that, on that, like crawl down the mountain in the rain in Peru, I had a vision of ayahuasca. Like it came to me in a vision. I was hallucinating. I was like, I was really sick. And it was like, it's time for you to come and meet this medicine. And I was like, not in Peru though, please. So at this point (laughs) you're in South America, but you went there with no intention of no, I had I, I had a friend who had, was into it and was into DMT and had kind of told me like a few years before he was like, I think this is going to come to you eventually. And so it's like, on your radar. Yeah, I had done some, you know, a little bit of research, but I wasn't, I certainly wasn't in a place to like, I wasn't going to drink it while I was in Peru. I had no plan. Like I knew that it was available there, but I, I wasn't, it wasn't on my radar. And then later when I looked back at like how I ended up getting down there, I was like, of course, that's what happened. Like the medicine was like, oh yeah, how can we get Sinclair to South America? Let's have her chase a boy down here because that's the kind of crazy shit that I used to do. Yeah. Um, And so I ended up like getting, you know, in a breakup with this person that I barely knew. And I I turned 40 there by myself um, in Ecuador, actually. I had that like moved on to Ecuador and just fell in love with like the vibe of Ecuador. And so on my 40th birthday, I was, I was like, okay, I'm going to, the next year of my life, I'm going to spend like falling in love with myself. And I went back to the U S for like three or four weeks. I booked another trip and a retreat, uh, ayahuasca retreat in Ecuador and decided I was going to spend the next seven months traveling in South America by myself. And I started in Colombia and then I went to Ecuador, did my retreat they asked me to stay in as a volunteer and then they gave me a job and I ended up okay. down so there. So now we're so. coming into where I met you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm curious. So in this big journey that you had, cause this is over many years. Yeah. Um, your first burning man experience, you're still drinking. You're still kind of stuck in these habitual patterns, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like the I had been sober for like about three years before I went to Burning Man for the first time and I was in kind of my first like post long period of sobriety relapse at that point where I was like oh this is fine like I did all this work on myself it's fine I don't need to worry about this anymore and it happened so fast that I got back to like being a hot mess because alcohol for me is just it's like a poison I can't it doesn't my constitution doesn't take it. It just, it's super depressed. Like it's a depressant. It completely isolates me from myself. And um, yeah. Well, I mean, kind of what I'm hearing is like, you're making these changes in your life, but it still felt like to some degree, your life was out of control, even though some things were getting better, like you're getting sober or maybe you're relapsing occasionally, but even like going to Ecuador to chase a guy seems 
somewhat kind of part of some old pattern of oh yeah well anyone anyone who you know quits using substances and doing like addictive things will tell you like especially the first year you're still addicted to everything like food you know sex whatever like I ended up meeting a friend of a friend like we met online and he had this big trip planned and he was like why don't you come with me and I was just like okay <laughs> but you know it wasn't any big it was like oh yeah that's like why not I mean I and I've always been kind of you know enthusiastic and spontaneous so you've had your heart broken you've had a vision on the mountain and then you go and do your first ayahuasca retreat yeah oh well that was so great what yeah so what was that like thematically for you oh man it was a lot it was like you know, I just, I just shared about my dad. Like I'd had this really difficult relationship with my dad and I, the first ayahuasca journey that I ever had, I went into his body. I experienced his death, like in his, like in his prison cell and like felt all of his suffering. And, um, it was really powerful to, as, as anger, I was, I recognized that I was very angry at him and um, for like, for a lot of, I had been angry at him for a long time, but I was angry, really angry at him for like, how could you do this to us? Like, how could you get yourself thrown in jail and then die there? Like what, and that, this was not the plan. Like, this yeah. is not the plan. And it, innate, like ayahuasca basically <laughs> sort of like, a spiritual flashlight she's like hmm oh you need to look at this you need to look at this you need to look at this and then with san pedro i was able to like connect to that rage and feel it and like i was pissed i did not know that i was enraged like that and through working with those two medicines together i was able to kind of like go underneath all of that and feel it and turn it into this really compassionate like now I have, when I think of my dad, it's just love, compassion. Like I don't have any, all of that is was released and gone. And San Pedro does not get enough credit, I think, in the medicine world of how like much heavy lifting that that medicine Well, does. yeah, I actually wanted to fill in here for people who don't <laughs> know, because I, I feel like people to a general degree are going to have ayahuasca on their radar. But San Pedro, it's worth mentioning here is in the same family as peyote. It's a mescaline-based cactus. And it's very different than ayahuasca in that, you know, ceremonially there's all different kinds of ways, but just on a pharmacological, if that's a word, level, um, it's, it's much more, it's not as disorienting. It's very... Um, clear and lucid depends how much you take yeah but in general (laughs) people have this very um emotionally heart opening experience um that's less dreamlike and confusing generally and more real heavy emotional stuff yeah also it can be very fun but it's like this very um, strong amplifier and heart opening emotion thing. Yes, absolutely. The So if you think about like ayahuasca is kind of the divine feminine spirit of the medicine and San Pedro is the masculine, the divine masculine. And what, what San Pedro did for me was like 
help me recognize, oh my God, I have this wound with the masculine energy. Like I have dated men who, you know, recreate my relationship with my father and like throughout my life have had this really, really wrong understanding of what masculinity is and, you know, carried a lot of anger through that. And that medicine was like, actually, this is what gentle, like masculinity is love. Like, like power is, is gentle. It's not, violence is not power. Violence is weakness. And like showing you stuff like that, it's, um, they work so well together and just having like, I don't think I could have gotten the whole healing trajectory that I got in that first retreat had I not been working with both of them. But I wanted to ask, so on this first retreat, you're, you're talking about like a spotlight. How much of you were you aware that like, were you going in thinking I'm going to be dealing with some dad stuff? Um, that's hard to know. That's hard to remember exactly. Like, I don't know, probably it was a big thing that, that I had, yeah, yeah. but I certainly didn't think, Oh, she's going to take me into his, like seeing him and feeling him being in prison and like she kept so throughout the journey I was like this is my first time to have any like DMT so I I, you know I didn't I was just like (gasps) this like hive came out and there was all these rooms and I I was just sort of laying there like oh my god it was sort of like this little sliver of infinity you know and then it was kind of like you could feel the medicine kind of steering you and I was like, I don't really, I know that I know where you're going. I don't want to go there. And yeah. I kind of was like, what about no, I want to go over here. And it was like, until you go look at this, you're not, this is where you're going. Or we're going to sit here and you're going to feel like you're going to puke until we go. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, I feel grateful that even, because I didn't really understand how important it is to have like the willingness, you know, they kind of, they try to prepare you, but it's not it doesn't really get in there until you've done it and you're like, Oh, okay. The fight, like if you try to fight with the medicine, it's very like for me that causes the like causes physical stuff. Yeah, entirely. And, and so I'm grateful that I was able to just be like, okay, yeah, let's go. Like I'm, I'm ready to look at this. And, and that was the thing. Like I knew because I had already gotten sober, I had, you know, probably six or seven months at this point that I was ready to do the work of healing what was making me drink in the first place because I knew that that wasn't actually my problem. (laughs) Like my problem was that I was in pain and that was what I was using to cope with it. And I, I, that's why I went to ayahuasca because I was like, this is, I was like, you're, I mean, you're the one that has all the credit for being able to heal this. Like if you can fix this, I'll be really impressed. And it worked so much better than I really expected. I think um, and it was so much different than I expected. In what ways? I think a lot of people have the expectation of the medicine doing all the work for you of like, I'm going to drink this. I'm going to have a ceremony. I'm going to wake up. I'll be healed. And it's absolutely not like that at all. It's like, it sort of shows you here's all of your stuff. This is where you this is the vision that that you had for yourself when you chose to come down here in this life. You need to get these things in alignment. 
And the way that you do that is you have to do a lot of spiritual work, a lot of inner work, a lot of shadow work, a lot of work. It's work. You are opening a process to doing work on yourself probably for the rest of your life. If And if you want to keep drinking medicine, you're definitely doing it for the rest of your life. Yeah. So I don't think I really, I certainly had no idea that I would be so profoundly affected by it that I would be like, move to Ecuador and start managing a retreat center and then, you know, become a, an integration coach because. I know what you mean in terms of it not being what you expected, because I, I think it's also sold very much as kind of an instant gratification or to varying degrees, depending where, but, or it might just be a Western mindset of we expect I'm going to go do this thing for two weeks. I'm going to come back and I'm going to be different and I'll forget about it <laughs> or I will do the work there and then I'll be done or, or even that it'll be work that right. didn't really enter my head. Yeah. I think that's a big surprise for a lot of people. So to go back to integration um, and specifically we're talking about like, you know, addicts who come and they have these life changing experiences and they're leaving happy. Aren't they like yeah. two weeks, like my life, I'm never going back to that boot. Like I'm, I'm a fucking changed man or woman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you see them leave with like this. I mean, so many, I think most people end up leaving retreat with like this exuberant baby, like, energy where you're very clean very pure you feel better than you felt anytime that you can remember pretty much yeah well there's this like combination of so many things that makes yeah. you for makes you feel like a newborn baby it's like surviving all of that all of the ceremonies everything that you released everything that you learned about yourself like so you have your own personal experience and then you also have the experience of being a support for other it's like you build a family with the retreat people that are there with you and the staff and it's it's like a little family unit is created and a lot of people have never had that before like I remember um when people would arrive we were always like all the volunteers so there's probably like 15 volunteers you know four or five staff everybody comes to the car and like hugs and people are just like holy shit what is going what is happening at this hippie commune and it was it was some this kind of connection and feeling of belonging and acceptance that I think really makes these retreats really special because it, it's like you get both of those things and watching other people heal and healing alongside of them like amplifies your own healing. It's sort of impossible not to feel like, you know, you feel really close to spirit. You feel like exalted and i like to use that word because it reminds me of terrence mckenna (laughs) but um yeah it's it's a special feeling and it can make people feel really low when they go home and it's like cut off that's gone you're back in your regular life where whatever was driving you nuts in the first place suddenly you have access to all of the coping mechanisms that you had before Mm -hmm. um yeah and people are so raw and and new and this vibration of this country is heavy and 
dark and it just it can really get on people and like send them into like a you know depressive yeah so almost instantaneously it's like you leave this retreat with all these friends that you made where you had incredible experiences with and then i mean a lot of times people are going back to an airport mm-hmm. and you gotta eat like some shitty food you don't want to eat <laughs> and then you get back in the states and customs and there's like I remember very vividly like noticing for the first time it's like just these giant American flags and like military like it's very aggressive iconography yeah and, like it seems like in I don't know just like mm. almost fascist <laughs> that's the view I had coming like straight almost from the, well currently this was like <laughs> yeah yeah I mean it is yeah. But you just notice for the first time, like this, like law and order authority, like mm-hmm. this, like, and you're like, holy shit, what? You... And then that just keeps coming from every direction when you go to a grocery store, or whatever. Uh, you've just been out in nature, you've been very connected, and then all of a sudden you're thrown back into all of the ills of society. Just the nature part alone is such a big deal because so many of us don't have either don't have access to it or are so like cut off from nature. Like we don't know how to, we don't put our feet in the grass. We don't like spend time outside really. Like a lot of people don't. Um, And I remember the, I I think the longest, I think I was out of the country for a whole year. And the first time I came back, it was sort of like that piece of like nature being very like manicure, like here's the nature you can go in this area and that's you're getting nature but like that's yeah, it here's it's the just... area we've allowed nature to exist exactly and then the other piece was just like the bombardment of advertising and messages and news kind of telling you everything is fucked up and horrible and you're stupid fat ugly like every yeah. it's like everything is coming at you telling you like you should buy this because whatever you've got going on is a hot mess and you need to do something about it and this and this product will fix it yeah and it it you know especially for people who are coming because a lot of people that i worked with very closely there were working on like self-love stuff and like body acceptance and you know working through their sexuality and all this stuff and like coming home in a place of deep acceptance of like I forgive myself for being addicted because I didn't love myself and you go back in and it's like oh yeah you didn't love yourself you suck that's why you don't love yourself you know and just it's easy to get derailed I think like I'm almost amazed that people can come back and, and retain the magic like and it sort of seemed like you know, people would be hanging on to this, this, this memory of, of their ceremony and the family and all that. And, you know, as a year goes by, two years go by, like, how often are people getting to go do ayahuasca retreats? Like, not often enough, probably, like, we definitely had people come back, which I always loved, but you have to prioritize that it's expensive. (laughs) Yeah. So well, I guess the key is in coming back, hopefully you've had an experience where you realize all of my problems are self-created or that I can take, con- this situation might suck, but I can take control of it in some way. Um, how I respond can change. Yeah, making that shift from like being a victim to being the empowered creator of your life is really the point, I think, of all of it. Because if you decide 
yeah, okay, all of this, you know, maybe I was, maybe I didn't have the parents I wanted. Maybe I got, I got assaulted. Maybe I was something violent happened to me. Like I've seen people transform really terrible things that like they were victimized and them shift into a place of like, I'm so grateful that that happened to me because now I have this life. I wouldn't have the children that I have, or I wouldn't have the job that I have or, and the same thing happened to me with my addiction. I became very grateful for my addiction, which if I had told myself that five years ago, I can't, I would have slapped my own self in the face. I'd be like, I know. I mean, it almost sounds made up to say, but it's true. And you see that story so many times of, well, I mean, kind of the first level is just acceptance of like Mm -hmm. a lot of people, if you have this big problem in your life, you're not even accepting that it is a problem or that, you know, maybe you've covered up the symptoms a little bit. Um, but you still have, and so like, there's that one level of acceptance, but then people really do find gratitude for really hard, awful things. Cause it makes them who they are. I mean, I found, I never would have guessed this, but finding gratitude of having a terrible infectious disease that, you know, fucked up my life for a whole year. And then I realized like, I mean, it, it brought me here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was such a powerful shift of, I had such a, like, my life is over. Um, yeah. And then having that shift of like, no, it's just begun. I love that changing, like from life is happening to me to life is happening for me. And it can be hard when you're in pain and when you're suffering, when things are hard, I've definitely had that happen like this year going from, you know, having this job that I loved at this retreat center to coming back to the U.S. into a pandemic and be like, okay, I'm going to start a business in the middle of this, like feeling really discouraged and stuck in it. And like kind of asking like, okay, what is the met? Like, what is the message? What is the lesson? And this year it's sort of been like acceptance. Like, can you, can you sit in this and accept it and keep going? Like, are you, how resilient are you? Like how, empowered are you are you because like I felt like I had to really remember that feeling so that I can be a good coach for people because if I haven't been like I think that's why I love this work and why I'm good at it is because I've been in I've been in the dark I've been in the shit I really have gone way deep into that side of it and it's if, if I can heal myself, like anybody can. And also the medicine, my experience with ayahuasca, if it's, if you aren't doing the work that those medicines are giving to you, they'll stop giving you, they stop giving. It's like, you know, you'll get, a, there's nobody on the other end because it's like, what are you doing here? What do you want now? Like I gave you a That's directive. the most fascinating thing. I don't know if that's true with other psychedelics, but certainly with ayahuasca, um, and you see it most often with people at the beginning of a retreat, you'll see people have this incredible reaction to one cup. And then you'll see this guy drink four cups and complain that nothing's happening and be all angry about it. And it's miraculous to me that that can even happen. It's interesting you bring that up because I've been feeling annoyed a lot lately with like, I'll call them, medicine bros but like i don't know there's sort of this <laughs> i know what you mean but define <laughs> define your term so there's kind of there's like lots of different sort of psychedelic types you know like there's 
but there is a type of person and it's generally a male person, no offense, but um, who are very interested in like the heroic dose of like, you need to blast your ego. You need to kill your ego. You need to take, if you're not taking the maximum dose, like, do you even, do you even trip bro? Like it's, it's like, it sort of feels like this big dick contest or whatever, like who can. Well, yes it is. And which ironically you're trying to kill your ego, but bringing the most ego into it, like who can, yeah, it's, it's who can have the biggest dick contest. Yeah. And I'm sure women do it too. But one of the things that I teach in my work is minimum effective dose. You do not need, the point is not to kill your ego. Your ego is there to protect you. It's there to, you know, help you. It's not your enemy. And it can be a very valuable way to understand yourself. And it's nice when it kind of steps aside and lets you, you know, it doesn't have to narrate the entire experience or whatever. But I feel like people think, okay, well, if I don't have this ego death experience, then I'm not healed. I'm not getting them. Like I didn't really meet the medicine. And so they end up, you know, drinking three or four cups of ayahuasca and, and, you know, the shamans will tell you the Western people are like more, 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 more. And once they finally have enough, they're like, make it stop, make it stop. And he's (laughs) like, I can't, I can't make it stop. You took, you bought the ticket. You got to take the ride. And, and you can, you can always drink more, but you cannot drink less. And if you drink too much, like you're going on that ride and it, it might very well be something that you do not want to go on. But that's probably what you need. If you, <laughs> I mean, it is what you need. If you get that experience, yeah, that's what you need to get. And I don't know. I, I just, I don't like the, the kind of goading of people to like take heroic amounts of medicine. It feels more, it feels sort of mindless and like disrespectful to the medicine. To it's also competitive it like and probably not giving you the emotional healing because it's very possible that if you take that dose, what you're really doing is kind of getting lost in a trans dimensional, impossible to describe experience that may be kind of cool in the moment, but you're really not going to take much away from it. Yeah. It's hard, to re- it's hard to remember. I think too, for people, it becomes a, a, a dream is what Mm -hmm. it becomes like this distant thing, you know, it it could be valuable in that a lot of times it shifts people's view of uh, spirituality in some sense, Mm -hmm. but it's also like once you've had that experience once you don't really need it again. Yeah. And people keep chasing it. They keep kind of go deeper and deeper. I got to go deeper. And it's like, no, you don't. I think you need to go like stay on the surface and (laughs) deal with some basic shit. Yeah, the and I'm saying that from my I've fallen in that trap too mm-hmm. of not to that extent, but like I think it's a very um, pervasive thing of feeling like I need to do more, I need to keep up with other people. That person drank this many cups and had this experience, and why am I not having that experience? I'm just over here feeling miserable about or whatever it is. It's like that comparison part of the human mm-hmm. brain is just as active in these psychedelic settings which is ironic because that's your ego (laughs) like right right it's like 
And it's funny because if you look at people who have a lot of experience with psychedelics, they're generally not drinking four or five cups of medicine. They're drinking maybe one, maybe one and a half. Like yeah. you can go, once you start learning how to work with them, you can go really far on a very small amount of medicine. And that like understanding that and learning, like if I drink two cups of ayahuasca now, that's how much I needed at my first retreat. I couldn't drink that much now. It would be, I would be like, like completely gone. And it's like you said, like, that's not, that's not really the point. Um, I like, you know, it's like, everyone's like, Oh, the vision, the light show, like that's the preview. That's like the, I'm not saying those aren't, those can't be valuable. You can certainly have conversations with the medicines through, those visualizations and those kind of journeys that you take get taken on and the stories that unfold a lot of the work is what happens after that of like really where you're having a conversation with the medicine of it's not about these visions or you know trying to hold on to like oh she showed me this thing what does it mean like this is the answer to the universe it's right it's the... like she's she's trying to show you like that you need to sleep more because that's why you're not showing up like as the father you want to be or you know it ends up being these these really things that people they're like surely it's surely there's an answer in the cosmos though and it's like well but you chose to come into this human form take care of your human body take care of the people in your life like learn how to love yourself that stuff is like not as sexy you know it's not as sexy as going on an intergalactic trans-dimensional space journey um but it's the stuff that actually changes your life <laughs> i mean yeah that's the best term for it because i think a lot of people are drawn in by the prospect of an intergalactic space journey yeah and it'd be great if some emotional stuff happens too and usually it's the other way around of hopefully it's mostly emotional work Mm-hmm. you know a lot of times really difficult stuff Exper- basically what you're doing is experiencing things that your conscious mind doesn't want to experience or look at because it's really painful mm-hmm. and that you actually maybe can't even find a way to do it would take so long of a therapist kind of digging and these layers and getting you safe enough to even confront these things um, yeah, you know, absolutely. childhood trauma can be repressed. I've certainly had that kind of stuff come up in ceremonies and just like a lot of stuff that you're really, really doing circles to avoid. And yeah. I don't think most people, th- I know I had heard about all that stuff when I did psychedelics and I was like, Oh, that's for fucked up people. That's not me. <laughs> I had that attitude of like, I don't have anything like that bad. I'm just a normal guy. Yeah. And then uh, that has slowly proven to not be the case as the layers get unpeeled. (laughs) I love ayahuasca because it's such an equalizer. It's like you can, you know, have started a retreat with someone and you're like, oh, wow, you know, this person seems so fancy and cool or whatever. And then their head is in a bucket just like... (laughs) just like anybody else's it's like every everybody's carrying pain everybody everybody has trauma everybody has stuff they're not proud of stuff that they wish they hadn't done stuff that's been done to them and it all it feels heavy like we're all carrying all this really heavy stuff and these medicines are like tools from the earth to they're like the earth is like here would you like to be more 
human, like, because you guys are really divorced from what it means to be human. You're carrying around pain and trauma and like, it sort of opens you up to like, oh, wow, I'm actually just, a, this guy came to this retreat and he really did not like himself. He was like, I have this voice in my head all the time that's telling me that I'm a piece of shit, I'm a piece of shit, I'm a piece of shit. Yeah. And Paul, Paulina was like, you're a piece of light. And so the whole retreat, she kept saying to him, you're a piece of light, you're a piece of light. And by the end of it, he's like, I'm a piece of light. Like, <laughs> and And that's what it is. Like we are we are eternal infinite we're all one thing just experiencing itself in all these different ways and to really feel that in your body and in your heart and in your mind like that you can with ayahuasca and all these other medicines it helps you remember like okay all of this stuff that i take so seriously like stuff doesn't matter like i'm i'm so lucky to get to have a glimpse of the bigger picture of existence and like what does it all mean and you know some people come out of it finding like oh my god i have this passion that i need to follow like they get a message of i need to be doing this completely different thing with my life or this relationship that i have isn't working anymore or i need to you know take care of my health in a different way because some, you know, some kind of something I was carrying was manifesting as an illness. And there's so many ways that people are healed through having that kind of trans transformational experience and feeling what it, it feels like to be pure love. And, you know, and oftentimes it happens in a completely opposite experience where you're dragged through hell and it's horrible and miserable and really difficult. And you're like, Oh fuck, maybe I should be a little bit more grateful. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Ayahuasca makes you really grateful. I think it does for me. <laughs> it does. And I think that's the scary part about if you're, I mean, that's the scary part. Even if you've done it a million times, you don't know what side of the corner yet, but to mm-hmm. have the courage to do it for the first time, knowing that, I don't know what it's like to be dragged through the muck yet, but it doesn't sound great. Mm-hmm. And then decide I'm going to do it anyway. That's why it's I a love scary thing to talk about willingness. Um, I think willingness is one of the most important skills or like concepts that you can take into working with medicine. Yeah. And people are like, well, what about surrender? And I'm like, yeah, you have to surrender repeatedly. And in order to be able to surrender whenever you need to and to do whatever is needed in the moment, you really need willingness. And willingness is sort of the thing where you don't know what's going to come. You don't know what any of the outcomes are going to be. You don't know if it's going to work for what you're coming for. And being willing to do, and, and being willing to do the work that comes up after I think is really, really important and can really make an experience more like valuable and, and you can maximize your time with the medicines if you kind of are able to prepare yourself in that way and know like whatever comes, I'm just going to say yes to it. I'm going to surrender when I need to and allow the experience to happen. And um, I think people get, sometimes in the ceremony and it's so much over more overwhelming than they expected that they spend a couple of ceremonies kind of like oh get it like holding Recoiling it and yeah yeah and i think that's also kind of part of it of, of like i think you kind of have to have that ceremony where you're just like hey 
just could you just back up a little bit like it's so it can be so intense um but over and over and over that medicine especially Aya has shown me like just relax if you feel shitty feel shitty like if you let yourself feel whatever it is it's much more pleasant it doesn't feel fighting as, it. yeah it, it's like most of the physical discomfort that i have comes from resisting something and that's why their breath is so important is because when you feel yourself kind of clinging or you know holding on to an idea or a belief or something that it's trying to show you like no this is not the truth it helps the breathing like really helps you just like let go and understand that if something is pulled away from you i don't know sometimes the it feels maybe your ego isn't dissolving but it definitely gets unraveled you know it's like she'll pull on a thread of like oh you think this is true well let me show you (laughs) it's completely not (laughs) and um that was always kind of scary for me it was never this okay you're gonna you know you're having an ego death it's all like the white light is coming or anything like that it was always just getting the threads pulled out and kind of letting go of myself as i thought i was and seeing that I'm so much more than that. And I had to just shove what I could into this body. (laughs) And, you know, it's just a little piece is what's in here. So I know what you mean. I think the way I experience that um, is I'm a very kind of like mind based person, like Mm -hmm. very brain. Um, And so even when I can be in like a very strong psychedelic experience with visions, I still a lot of times feel this rational part of my brain going, hmm, I wonder what the neurotransmitters are doing right now. And like, (laughs) I wonder how this relates to uh, Newton's third law. And there's this kind of constant narration of, of instead of experiencing the thing, Mm -hmm. like living in my mind and having this extra layer in front of it. And so repeatedly with ayahuasca, I've had these waves of an experience that's so strong that it might be kind of pulling on my ego or identity or things like things that are so strong, but I have no choice. The only way to get through it is to let go of that narration Mm -hmm. and become kind of like just a pure sensation, pure, the experience is washing over me and my rational mind just completely flies out. And most of the time afterwards, I can't remember any of it. And that's, I think, by design of like, stop trying to understand, be, feel, stop trying to figure it out. Um, and I've had that experience. I think I'll continue having it repeatedly because I always get back in this noggin. But like that experience has been so valuable to me because it's something that I think helps me be more present. I love that you said that. That is so true. The stop trying to understand it part is so true. And it's so freeing when you get to that point of like, I don't have to, I don't have to take snapshots of every vision and like, you know, file them and and later be like, okay, what did that mean? You know, and I think a lot of people who are searching for the meaning or the answers or something else in that experience have the most trouble kind of accepting that like there is no way to know like you'll never know you can't know and you can't know everything that is like it's not possible in this this form that we have and 
that was, you were talking earlier about people who keep taking, you know, deeper, I need to go deeper. I need to go deeper. I need to understand yeah. it. I've seen people get really like tortured over that and, you know, like have these experiences where they're just like, they're, they're always looking for something more. And, and they're they, always going to be shown something even more inexplicable and like <laughs> puzzle, like it's going to end up, I mean, what the, the end of that road looks like is like in a movie when you see that guy like posting sticky notes all over the wall and trying to draw like the connections between everything like there mm-hmm. is kind of a danger there of descending into genuine madness or or you know also like being so invested in that world the being so invested and attached to having the veil pulled back and not being able to be here in the human. Yeah. Yeah. And like people becoming, you know, suicidal or like I, you know, there's some, a, a lot of retreat centers do a kind of screening around. Like if you're looking, if you're wanting to look in the darkness and find and not find any compassion or, you know, you're just wanting to go into the dark to harm yourself. Like, we don't allow that who, here. Who wants that? I think, Other people? I mean, I think there are, you know, I think people are suffering from all kinds of, of things. And sometimes psychedelics are, you know, there's a dark side of, of that, yeah. of that world. There's all this healing and all of this, there's all this positive, there's positive ways that you can use these medicines and there's dark ways you can use them. You know, people, there's a really a lot of sexual assault in the medicine communities. Yeah. Um, a lot of like taking advantage of people in all kinds of different ways. Um, you know, like unfair labor practices, exploitative people exploiting indigenous tribes and you know taking the money and it's like the list of like how people are evil is is kind of endless. well it has the same baggage as any spiritual community and you can see this all the way back when you watch you know documentaries from the 70s and things like that mm-hmm. is like it can quickly become cult-like it can become mm-hmm. like you said you know these sexual dynamics and um all kinds of things it's the same thing happens over and over so i saw you wrote this guide um oh yeah i I read that and i was really impressed with that and i thought it would be good to because what we're just talking about like all the darkness Mm -hmm. i know that's fucking terrifying if you're considering doing ayahuasca and you're like well now you just told me there's dark spirits and evil sorcerers and i'm having trouble just even considering doing this anyway and then there's this layer. So what do you tell people, say I'm just starting out and I've never done this. Walk mm-hmm. me through, like, what do I need to know? What do I need to be considering as a new person who's interested in doing ayahuasca? But I... Where to start? Yes. So that's sort of why I made this guide is because I want to get people... Uh, I want at first I was like well you know I do integration I want to help people process but then I recognized actually I need to get them way earlier in the journey because it starts so much before like way before you actually take the medicine to really have a full healthy 
powerful circle of like holistic healing with these medicines, you gotta, you gotta start early. And so that's why I made the guide. And the first kind of thing is to, I mean, I say this in there, start where you are. And it's like, you have to go into yourself and ask yourself why, like, why are you doing this? What's calling you? And start doing some research around there's so much on the internet about what these medicines do, what they're for, like which ones are good. You know, you may be feeling called toward one or the other or whatever, but I think that step of like, okay, where am I? What am I expecting to heal or wanting to heal? Am I actually willing to do the work of like how this might be a, you know, quite long, intense, arduous process. Um, And do you think people can go wrong with, I think ayahuasca is probably the most popular or mm-hmm. the most recognized. Do you think that's a good place to start for people? Um, that's an interesting question. Ayahuasca is a hardcore medicine. Like it's one of, it's the most powerful hallucinogenic medicine in the world. Yeah. Like it's, it's, if you're worried about, like if you've never had any kind of experience recreational or otherwise, um, you may want to start with something like mushrooms because mushrooms okay. are a little more accessible, I think. And that's where I think a lot of people kind of find their way to plant medicine through either mushrooms or LSD and kind of have these, I like to call them like accidental breakthroughs or whatever, where you're not really, you didn't come with the intention of like, I need to heal my relationship with my you know, father right, or whatever. Right, right. But you have this profound experience where you feel connected to everything, you know, you feel overwhelming, unconditional love. And that draws people into like, wow, like these medicines are so powerful. And I had such a positive experience. I worked with mushrooms. I, the first time I ever started working with them was when I was 19. And I did them, you know, recreationally for years without knowing that they were medicine. I didn't, I had no idea yeah. until, you know, I was much older. Um, and mushrooms actually i had a very dark experience with mushrooms and the mushrooms told me do not come back here until you're ready to hear what i have to say you need to go see ayahuasca and i was just like it was like she's like slamming the door in my face no and um (laughs) sort of a side tangent but well i have to chime in with i had a similar experience i smoked dmt on my 21st birthday oh boy and i just got this like blaring sign of like you are not ready get out get out (laughs) and i've never done it again well i guess i did ayahuasca eight years later yeah well so it was strong enough that i was like i don't think this is for me if you are if ayahuasca is for you you're gonna do it you're gonna know because that medicine really calls people it like it's like something draws you to it and everybody says that tends to be it something does draw you but it tends to be usually a desperation Mm -hmm. kind of a last resort type thing Mm -hmm. or a powerful feeling of like aimlessness yeah there's usually like a very strong emotional motivator of almost like i have to do this yeah well i think that's how it works i mean i think that's what that medicine does to like it it puts, there are some people that in like particularly in my coaching community around people who believe that 
if you have an addiction and you've overcome it and like it's because you are meant to like work with these plants and that's how the plants get you to come and like wake up and like the addiction itself the addiction like all kinds of you know all these suffering things that we go through that, that bring you to plant medicine a lot of people believe like that is the purpose of those things is to get you yeah. to the place of weight. It's like, it's like, okay, well you're coming out of the matrix now. Like you're taking the, is it the red pill? It's the blue pill. I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know. That's um, also recently become associated with like QAnon and stuff. So I've kind of stopped. Oh really? It. <laughs> oh God. I'm so out of the loop. I don't know anything about them. Thank God. Um, sorry about that. No, I would say that mushrooms are great ayahuasca is also great they're very different there are retreats for both so let's say it's like so you decided you're going to drink ayahuasca well you need to find a good place to do it and there are a lot of options and a lot of like variations in price and duration and location and it's really important to figure out what your needs are and if you're someone who hates bugs and hot you're not going to want to be in the jungle like yeah don't you know be honest with yourself of like do you need to be in a you know would you rather be on the beach like i have a friend who runs mushroom retreats to mexico and they are in tulum it's like if you want to be in that environment you're probably going to go to mexico um you can also drink ayahuasca in mexico there's there's a chances are there is a retreat center in a location that is perfect for you. And then you just kind of have to find out like, what is the reputation of this place? Who are the shamans or the leaders? Um, and ask a lot of questions, like contact the retreat center yourself. There's, there's also like ayahuasca. Aya advisors is um, a fairly, the thing, the problem I have with them it's is that the Yelp of ayahuasca for people. When yeah. And it's also the centers pay to be on the top. So if you're seeing someone on that top row, they're paying probably four or $5,000 to be on there. And the shamans should be making a good amount of money doing this. Like a lot of people don't agree with that. They think that shamans should work for free. But if you think about in, you know, the tribal cultures, the medicine people, the healers, they did not work. They didn't have to do any. They were the healers and the village took care of them. They were housed. They were clothed. They had everything they needed because they were providing a valuable service. So these people study, they not only study the medicine, but they put their own life at risk every time they have a ceremony. Like they're taking on the responsibility of caring for all these people. And the stuff that they have to do to get at least in Ecuador, they do four vision quests. One, it's like four days, seven days, nine days, and 13 days where they sit on a mountain and have no food or water for like every year. They do it for like longer and longer. Yeah. And they drink a bunch of medicine while they're up there. And then they also do four sun dances, which is where they spend four days dancing and um, with peyote generally and some other yeah. medicines. And then they pierce, you know, pierce the skin and it's tied to a tree and they like dance until it pulls. So they do some really intense spiritual work to be invited to have the privilege of carrying these medicines. And um, that deserves, you know, respect. But also we live in a world where money is energy and like that's 
what they're trying, you know, for them to be able to make a living sharing these traditions and these medicines with people is really important. Um, yeah, I think there's a conception. I certainly am guilty of it sometimes. That like, if you're really spiritual, you should live in a hut and you should only eat, uh, you know, bananas. And we sort of deny spiritual people. We all live in the modern world. We kind of expect them to fulfill this kind of superhero role of mm-hmm. living as these mythic beings that are divorced from capitalism in any way which is just not the case well and it's not it's like okay well we want the capital we want to be able to come to a retreat and have a resort kind of experience where okay it's a hotel also in addition to being this like healing center yeah and but people don't want to pay they're like well i don't want a thousand twelve hundred dollars oh my god that's so expensive it's like you have 30 people on staff for a week plus like all the cost of like maintaining the buildings and paying, you know, all of the the bills and the water and it's expensive. And the, all of the, all of the sort of industry around spirituality, I can understand why people, there's a lot of shitty people trying to, you know, take people's money. Um, but you have to be discerning and say, okay, this is a really valuable service. I'm about to go and work with a professional who is a professional dimension walker, basically. <laughs> like right. this, is a, this is a serious profession and they should be compensated and the staff that works there should be compensated and the service, you know, kind of like we're happy to pay tons of money to like Amazon and Target and all these huge yeah. companies. But if some, you know, somebody's like started their own business or is a shaman, it's like, how dare that shaman want to get paid? Like, ugh. Yeah. So I think this is a good place to a good final point to end on is, so you've got this coaching business and I, I saw one of the videos you did talking about, um, resistance people might have to kind of asking for help or having a coach right yeah so like there's this concept of i think a lot of us have i need to do everything my i can do this myself yes right i am the queen of that i love not asking for help which is funny that i became a coach because it's definitely like now after i started experiencing coaching i was like i have been shortchanging myself this whole time by not asking for help, like not asking for help. And, and the thing, did you that, work with a coach? I did. I have, I am. I, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So like, I, 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 I used to think, I thought when I first heard like coaching, when I was trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with all of this experience and knowledge and like desire I have to work with plants and work with medicine and help people and do integration? How is this going to turn into something that I can actually do? And coaching kept coming in when I was like, this is a bullshit profession. Like, I don't (laughs) believe in this. It's so, I was like, I, it sounds fake. Like, I don't, you know, because you hear like, oh, I'm a life coach. Like, who needs a coach for their life, really? I was just like, I thought it was so stupid. And then I sort of started looking into it. And I recognized that, like, it pulled in all of, all of my kind of skill set and, and desires to be available to, um, you know, kind of be like a guide, a teacher, a mirror, like an accountability partner. 
it encompasses it can encompass so many different things and it allows you to build a personal relationship with with people i love doing group coaching because it reminds me of like a big san pedro ceremony where one person is in the hot seat and then everybody's kind of getting the healing around that and it very quickly became obvious that like that is the path that i needed to do and then i and then i found a training program that trains psychedelic integration coaches and addiction recovery coaches oh wow and yeah so i did a seven month um training specifically for working with people who are working with psychedelics and from there it was like i got all the tools that i needed to kind of take that and like what i had already known and all of my you know history and nonprofit and like systems and building i'm a program manager i love program building and was able to like come up with a course i'm building i'm building a course right now um that's going to be ready in a couple months i guess and it is sort of the whole package so you said yes well i think i do everything myself so you can you can spend hours and hours and hours and hours and weeks and months research, you know, doing all of the stuff and piecemealing everything together and like kind of trying to figure it out and then hoping that like your friend group can support you when you get home or that you'll have some kind of um, way to, to make the changes that you want. You could also (laughs) um, take this course that I'm doing. And so it's basically, it's two weeks of kind of self-discovery and preparation, holistic, um, holistic preparation, and then six weeks of integration and navigation. So kind of teaching people how to navigate the experience and then having a period after where they have the support that they need. And um, it's called, I mean, Psychedelic Integration Academy is what I named it because it's sort of like a little school that you can do. And I wanted to create something that was like accessible to people online to where they didn't have to like have totally in-person stuff. And it has a group coaching component, like weekly calls. And um, they can also, if you wanted to do like private sessions with me, I offer that as well. But I, I created the thing that I wish that I had before I started working with ayahuasca because while I had a really special experience of being able to live in a community where everyone is drinking medicine all the time, I kind of wanted to recreate that for people who are, who don't have that, who are like going out there and then, you know, having someone who understands these medicines to talk to who's been through it and who's healed a bunch of stuff with it is really powerful. And that's sort of the coaching the magic of, of getting a coach. I have a business coach. I have, I have had a personal coach, which I am not working with her anymore, but I have a hormone coach that is helping me <laughs> work, like heal my hormones. So there's coaching for everything. It's so awesome because it's like making something just for you and getting, a, you know, getting this personal relationship with someone that's not a ther- that's not a therapist that doesn't have to you know, coaches are not therapists. I'm not a counselor. I don't do that. It's like a different, it's basically like I'm a mirror to help you see yourself in a different way and to help you feel empowered to make the changes in your life that you want to make and to do it safely. Like a big piece of my course is sort of preparing people for what, like what you asked earlier, like, how do I, how do I get started? What do I do? And, um, you know, there are so many resources online for how to 
how to prepare and what to do. And, you know, each retreat center is going to be different as well, but having someone to kind of walk you through that stuff and be available to answer questions or whatever, I basically am doing what I did when I worked at the retreat center. I just am like a free agent now. (laughs) Which you did for, you know, what, over hundreds of people coming through. Yeah. 400 people. Right. I I counted them up one time. (laughs) Yeah. It was a lot. It was cool. That was a cool, I, I felt really like, it was such an honor to get to have that job and to um, be graced with like the privilege of getting to heal with people in that way. It is, uh, it will always be such a special experience I have. I love Ecuador and um, you know, I want to keep taking people down there and helping them find what they need to find and use these medicines to do it. They're such powerful, beautiful tools. And it's such a magical journey. Like I know we've been talking a lot about how much work it is, but it's it's so, it's like so worth it, you know, like, and I think it's, it's like, if you really want to know what it's like, you have to, you got to take the ride yourself. You got to take the plunge. Yeah. And yeah, as much as we, it's my goal to kind of get into the nuance a little bit, but if you just look at the story on paper of like, I was an alcoholic addict and then in three years I completely changed my life or a lot of times in less than three, you know, like there's a very, a very quick transformation period that's followed by a lifelong uh, practice or dedication or, but the stories that come out of this stuff are truly amazing. So Mm -hmm. if I turned anyone, if we turned anyone off, hopefully you've got to the end uh, (laughs) where it it really makes a difference. Well, and I would say I did, you know, I took the action of like stopping drinking before I started working with the plants. I would not be sober today if it was not for those plants. Like if it was not for my relationship with these medicines, I wouldn't have been able to, to maintain that because I would never have really healed everything that was causing that addiction to come out in the first place. So they are magic. They gave me my life back. They gave me my purpose back and like they helped me find myself again. And I can't, anybody who's, who's like feeling lost and, you know, looking for a hope, the the medicines can help you. It's, I, I really believe they can help almost anybody unless you have some kind of reason, like medical reason that you can't work with them. Um, it's worth investigating at least because they're that powerful. Yeah. Hashtag. Thank you. Plant medicine. Yeah. Um, thank you. Sinclair. This was so fun. Yeah, I know. It was so nice to see you. You look great. I'm so glad you're doing well. I'm excited yeah. to be a new fan of your podcast. Hey, you made it to the end. That's crazy. You guys are part of my inner circle. Okay. So I wanted to share this clip from Ramdas. You can hear it on the Ramdas Be Here Now podcast, which I'll also link in the show notes. Because I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to use this. But if you don't know Ramdas, you need to get on board. I think this really, really articulates a lot of what I've been struggling with or talking about with guests in terms of finding it and losing it. Um, whether that be your spirituality or just a sense of well-being. Check this clip out, man. Ramdas knows. See, the game is now to start to respect what's in you 
and to get over this dependency, which brings you here, actually. Okay. I mean, if, we were, if we we're very straight about it, the reason you're here is because you don't know you're it yet. Otherwise, what the hell are you doing here? You don't need me. I'm only here to remind you that you're it. If I do my work perfectly, you walk out of here feeling stronger than you walked in. With the breathing exercise, with the following of the breath, with a couple of books of the words of people who've made it, and with the needs of your incarnation in terms of the needs to help beings around you to alleviate suffering and to take care of your body and alleviate your own suffering, you have all the ingredients you need to become totally realized. So everything from then on is your own lack of faith which you can recognize, you can go take a course in meditation because you say, I just need help, I need some support, I'm not strong enough. But don't cater to that thing, don't get desperate because it's still a cop-out. Now, at first what will happen is your meditations will start to give you that quiet space or your week-long retreat will give you that quiet space. And then you will come back into the world and immediately the stuff will start to happen to you again and you'll lose the space. And you'll say, I came down. And you'll see down as less close to God than up. Fallacy. Down and up are all part of the journey. When you go on a road, you will notice that the road dips and rises and dips and rises, but the road's always moving in a certain direction. I think you're beginning to recognize that your depressions, your down states, in fact, every state that happens to you all the time is part of the process if you will just give it space to be that, rather than saying, if I only didn't have that, I could go on to God. It's all energy. It's all patterns of energy. There are teachings in every state you have. You see about your attachment to pain, your attachment to suffering, your clingings. You get to see all of them in vivid technicolor. Now, in fact, the only reason the marketplace brings you down is because of your own desires. If you didn't want anything, as I said before, New York City and a Himalayan cave would be exactly the same place. You are only brought down by your own attachments. And the point is that at first, it's nice to get away from the stimuli in the environment that keeps seducing you into involvement at that level. But don't conclude because you end up being pure and light and light's pouring out of you and everything's so light and you're feeling different that you're all done. You come back into the marketplace and after a little while, if you come back and those vibrations are there and those seeds in you are not cooked, and just because they disappear doesn't mean they're cooked, it just means they went underground. They're just seeds that haven't been watered. And you come and you put the water and the seed that seems like it's, it's been sitting in the ground for years, and then suddenly it takes root and blossoms. And you say, oh, I blew it. No, you didn't blow it. That's just a new stage. Now you're coming at it from a new place because you've experienced what out is. Now you're back in again. And you begin to play with these processes of getting lost, awakening, forgetting, remembering, forgetting, remembering. And that process becomes ex so exquisite, it's breathtaking. You see, this again is a matter of the degree of faith. When your faith is too flickery, every time you forget, you think you lost it forever. 
and you're damned and cursed and you've fallen out of grace and you've blown it. And then you remember again and, oh, I'm back. Oh, I never want to leave her again. When your faith gets a little stronger, you know you're hooked. You really can't lose it. And when you forget, you say, far out, I forgot again. I'm depressed. Isn't this hell? God, am I depressed. God, I hate God. I hate the spirit. What a bunch of crap that is. What am I doing? I just want to go to the movies. I just want to get drunk and get laid. Out of the hell with all this shit. This is all nonsense. And you sit there. And it's far out when you see that as part of your sadhana. And that's the business of the balance of the feet, see? When your faith is very flickery and you think you can get lost for this entire lifetime and forget the whole thing that brought you here, your weight is primarily on the center of the circle because you're terribly afraid that you're going to be pulled back into the world. But once you have tasted of that peace, you've tasted of the flow of energy, you start to taste a little bit of the bliss, you start to taste a little of the connectedness, you feel the quality of the love, you start to experience the compassion. Once that happens, then the waiting shifts just a bit and you actually go out almost defiantly to get lost, but you can't. The truth of the matter is, if you look in your own hearts, most of you have not had the faith that you in fact could change, that you could be a being of the spirit. Because many of you had these spiritual experiences of awakening and you had them through drugs, you had them through something like trauma or emotional upset or through a connection with somebody or somebody else's high or coming to hear somebody, something like that, which gave you the feeling they're it, the pill is it, something's it, but I'm not it. And that's the interesting business that as you start to use methods like the breathing in and breathing out, you get more and more dependent on the stuff in yourself, not in other people or in books or in pills or in the certain kinds of experiences.